Well, welcome today to our series as we continue our multi-church teaching on expanding circles. Today, I'm really excited to cap off the series that uh, Gary and John have started and continued, and we're going to be talking about the ends of the earth. Now, I think for all of us, three things have been true in the past year. I can actually guarantee these are three things we've all experienced in some way. First of all, you have had to wait. You've had to wait for schools, you've had to wait for jobs, you've had to wait for vaccines. There has been a lot of waiting and a lot of not knowing when things are going to get back to normal. Also, a lot of us have had unfamiliar things. The word unprecedented has been used a lot, right? These are unprecedented times. And so there's a lot of things that have been unfamiliar to us. We've had to learn new things. And of course, common to all of this is that there's been a lot of distress a lot of problems, but not just for ourselves, right? I think a lot of us have, have felt some discomfort or some pain and grieve the losses that have happened, but also we're aware that there's a lot going on with other people, a lot going on with our friends and our family. And we've begun to be distressed, not just for ourselves, but for those around us as well. And so I think it's really relevant as I've been going through the book of Acts and reading through it and preparing to finish off this series after Gary and John, that we're going to be in Acts 17 today because it tells us about a time that Paul had to wait. And it tells us about a time where he was in unfamiliar surroundings. And it tells us about a time when he was not only in distress because of things happening to him, but he was distressed by what was happening around him. And that God used that to help him accomplish the Acts 1 verse 8 mission, that Paul who had received power when the Holy Spirit came on him, that he would be the witness that Christ would send to the ends of the earth. And so we're going to pick this up in Acts 17 today. And we wanna remember that we are all witnesses, right? That we are witnesses because the Holy Spirit has empowered us. That's the point of the church, right? That we are God's body on earth for his hands and his feet, and that the great commission is to go and make disciples, all of us. It's not just the job of the pastor or the missionary or your friend over there with the gift of evangelism. We are all supposed to be witnesses. But how do we do that? And how do we do that not only locally, but going to the ends of the earth? And so I'm really excited about this passage because I think it brings us some pretty good clues. Now, just to recap a bit, when the early church started in Judea and Samaria, and even as they started to spread wider geographically, they started to meet in synagogues, right? They would go to the local synagogue where the Jewish people would meet and teach from what they had then, which is the Old Testament. And they would teach and tell the story about Jesus, about the facts of what had happened, his death, his burial, and his resurrection. And often as the gospel spread, they would also go to houses, right? Now houses then, if you uh, lived in kind of a small house, you wouldn't be hosting a church. Generally, it was somebody who was well off and they would host in what was called the domus, right? Or the this large house, kind of like a work-live situation. And there'd be this kind of big atrium in the front, like 60 people to 150 people. And the big atrium area is where you'd have a church, kind of a similar size to most churches in Canada today, 60 to 150 people. And so what we saw as the early church spread was you're already getting like out of the synagogue and into these larger buildings, into these house churches. But as the gospel spread, God was going to bring it even farther and into even more scenarios, different platforms and different ways that God would have the church spread. And so I'm excited to kind of talk about that today because people would receive the good news about Jesus. And then time and time again, as the church spread, the people who spread the gospel, like Paul and Silas and Timothy, they would run into opposition. And most often it would be 
from the old crowd. It would be from the local religious leaders, right? They go to the synagogue and people would receive it with joy. And then there'd be criticism and opposition. And you can handle a bit of criticism and opposition, right? I think most of us have been in situations where we have a little criticism or a little opposition. You can handle it for a bit. But what would happen sometimes is that they'd graduate to making death threats and actually plotting to kill Paul and people like him. And so they'd have to get out of town. So when we pick up in Acts 17, we were picking up after one of these situations. They had just been to Thessalonica, and again, they'd received the word with joy, and there's a church is starting to go, gangbusters there, it's going wonderful. And then some troublemakers come, religious people, they stir up the crowd, they actually hire some th thugs and get an angry mob, and they drive them out of town. So Paul goes to Berea, where very famously they received the word with joy and they searched the scriptures. The Bereans, right, they were of more noble character. And they not only received the gospel about Jesus Christ, but they looked into the scriptures they had, again, the Old Testament, and they made sure that it was accurate. But who arrives in town not after that? The troublemakers. And they stir the people up. It actually says they were upsetting and disturbing the crowds in Acts 17, 13. And Probably another thing we've learned this year is that when people are upset and when people are disturbed, they don't learn too well. It's been really hard for us to integrate some of the new information we've got this year or to learn all these things about um, new ways to cope with health restrictions and the new ways to learn because when you're already in a state of heightened anxiety, you're not really up for learning. And so the Bereans, these new Christians, they said, you know what, we got to send you guys away because it's getting dangerous here. And so the brothers and sisters, the Adelphoi there, the church, they send Paul out of Berea. And they're also going to send Silas and Timothy after him. But Paul has to go to Athens. And that's where we pick up the story today. So 1714, the brothers and sisters send him away. And in, Paul 7, in Acts 17, 16, we see this inconvenient opportunity. Paul is in Athens and he's by himself and he's waiting and Silas isn't there yet and Timothy isn't there and so it just says Paul is waiting in Athens but God has a plan for Paul and God has a plan to not only give him a mission not only to bring people to Jesus but also God has a plan that there's going to be a whole new way of spreading the gospel in Athens and one that will give a foothold and a foundation for spreading the gospel in even different ways down the road. And so God isn't going to waste this opportunity, even though Paul is also in unfamiliar territory, unprecedented times, even though Paul is also in some personal distress, even though Paul's seeing a lot of change. So even though he has every reason to focus on his own problems, he's already feeling the Holy Spirit tug in his heart and see the people around him as the Holy Spirit has done with us, even in the middle of this pandemic. So 17 verse 16, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he's waiting, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. And he's distressed, right? To see that people are spending their lives looking to false hope, to idols, to think that they're gonna get success by other things. And not only that they're not turning to God, the living God, but that they're actually doing things that will harm them, that will harm their families and their bodies and their finances and not just their eternal destiny, but right now there's things they're doing. And he's just like, ah, it's just not good. It's all false hope. This philosophy is not leading to life. These gods are not leading to life. And so I love what Paul does. He doesn't get angry. 
He doesn't petition the government. He doesn't send letters to the Christians in another city and say, look at how bad these people are. He doesn't start this moral crusade. It says he reasoned with the people. Or in Greek, he dialogued, dialegomai. He talked back and forth. Verse 17, so he reasoned, dialegomai, in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks. Well, okay, we've seen this before, that when Paul goes to a new city, he's gonna go to the synagogue and talk to people who are already worshiping the one God there, the God of Israel. And he reasoned with them, both the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks who began to attend the synagogue. But here's where we see something new. Here's where we see that God is expanding the platform for the gospel. Here's where we see the opportunity in the middle of the distress, in the middle of these unprecedented times, in the middle of things happening that Paul didn't expect, in the middle of the waiting. So he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace, day by day with those who happen to be there. He goes to the marketplace, the agora, the place in that city where new ideas were talked about, where the philosophers were, where people wanted to learn. He saw that people didn't know God, that they didn't know the truth, and he went to where people were willing to dialogue, to discuss and learn. And he begins to talk about the gospel. He doesn't change it, he doesn't water it down, but he dialogues, he talks back and forth. He didn't microphone or megaphone, he dialogued. And it's very specific, that word, that it doesn't mean just getting your point of view across, but it means learning and understanding the other person. And Paul, knowing the culture he's in and the city he's in, he begins to dialogue. And places where you can go, right, to talk to people, platforms, ways of engaging people in dialogue in 21st century pluralist Canada, those are all over the place, right? Whether that's places you live, like your neighborhood or your family, your job or your school, whether it's online and things like Facebook and Instagram, all of our video chat platforms, whether you're doing Zoom or Skype or Google Meet or whatever one you're using, there's a ton of platforms out there. Even the name, right? If you've been on an online discussion forum on the internet in earlier days, they're forums, they're places for discussion. And Paul picks up on the one that's available there in Athens. And he says, okay, I'm gonna go in the synagogue, but as well, I'm going to use this new platform to spread the gospel. What platforms has God given you where you can dialogue with people? Because I love how Paul brings the message. He doesn't wait for an invitation, but he begins the dialogue. He brings the message and he's very clear about the gospel. He's not changing it. And so verse 18, a group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. I just love the engagement, right? Like I'm naturally a debater and I would love to go back and forth with you or probably anybody on just about any topic, right? Like dinner table conversations growing up were awesome. We just talked back and forth all the time. We're like me and my husband, we're like talking about different issues or my friends. I love to debate. And maybe that's not your personality type, right? But what we get the impression of here is that Paul's not just, again, slamming down his point of view. He's talking back and forth with people who want to engage. And it's interesting because these are Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. Um, Stoic philosophy has actually had a bit of a, a resurgence, right? If you know Stoicism, right, it's about not being affected by external circumstances and about having self-control and being unaffected by things. 
And it's interesting because if you look at some of these uh, like self-help things or workout videos or some of the different uh, um, books written recently or podcasts, Stoicism is actually a fairly common philosophy even now, this idea that you need to demonstrate self-control. And of course, there's some things in that that are compatible with Christianity, right? Self-control is a fruit of the spirit. Being able to do good despite circumstances is a fruit of the spirit. But there's also things in Stoicism that totally contradict Christianity, right? The fact that in Christianity, we don't look to ourselves for the solution. We need a savior. And our fundamental problem isn't a lack of, of virtue or self-control. It's that we're dead in our sins and we can't save ourselves. Now you flip on over to the Epicurean philosophers, right? And those all about enjoyment and satisfying the appetites that if it feels good, you should do it. And again, there's parallels to that in our current culture too, right? That there's people that just say like, if we have appetites, we may as well satisfy them. But then you get in this treadmill, right? Of always trying to satisfy your appetites and you want more and more and more and more and more, and you can never be satisfied. All these philosophies have some things Paul can agree with, but there's also just these fundamental, basic, at the core, incompatibilities with the Christian worldview. And so what does Paul do? Again, he doesn't slam down the gauntlet and say, this is it. This is the only way you have to believe and I don't want to listen to you. But Paul is secure. He knows what the gospel is. And so he reasoned with them. He dialogued. And so Paul mes Paul's message doesn't change. He engaged. And I want us to be aware that the initial response to this did not sound super positive. Check it out. Verse 18 continued. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. So Paul hadn't compromised his message. He's crystal clear that it's about Jesus and the historical fact of the resurrection, that he is real and he is the risen Christ. And that is life change. He hasn't compromised his message or changed it for the culture. He's clear on it. And his initial response is kind of like, mm, I, I don't know. And they're not dumb people, right? These aren't a bunch of people that are just unreceptive and want to brush it off. And they certainly don't lack the mental capacity to understand it, but they're unfamiliar with it. And that's very close to the, the culture that we're in today, right? People are unfamiliar with the gospel. Now, before my time, maybe 50 to 70 years ago, Canada and the United States even more so was culturally Christian. That means I heard about times, not in my lifetime, but I've heard about times where, where the stores would be closed on Sunday or that everybody went to church or at least knew where the church was. And that's not where we're at, right? That's not where we're at now. And so back in those days, you know, you could invite a bunch of people to this big evangelistic rally and tell them the gospel. And because people were already culturally so close. They had a framework for understanding Jesus. They understood what he was about. The concept of sin meant something to them. It wasn't too hard to say, take this extra step in and, and jump and trust Jesus. And the Holy Spirit still had to work on their hearts and God had to do a work and people had to respond. But the groundwork was there. But what Paul's doing in Athens and where we start a lot closer to today is, is back here where we're just talking about Jesus and people are like, what are you talking about? What is this babbler trying to say? And it takes repeated conversations before people even know who Jesus is and what he's about and if they're going to accept him. And so we see after Paul's first conversation, 
because of how he's approached it with truth and grace and dialogue, he gets invited back. And I want to encourage you that if you're talking to people about Jesus and they don't jump right to being saved right away, you're not doing anything wrong. That's the culture that we live in, that people have to have repeated conversations before they make that jump and trust Jesus. There's a whole framework of sin and creation and who God is. And we have a whole um, Bible to be aware of, a whole bunch of history to be aware of before you accept Jesus. And I love it. You know, there's been some people that have come out to our church and God has been bringing them through conversations with their family and their friends and their grandma. And then finally, when they come to our church, they say, yeah, you know, we want to follow God. But I know that God has done all this preparation work along the way before they made that decision. And very often the conversations I have are, they're over here somewhere. We're getting ready to help people trust Jesus. We're doing outreach that just demonstrates God loves you and God is for you. And we love you and we are for you. And we are going to do things that demonstrate that love. And so when we do things that love our city, when we do things that serve our city, all of our cities, right? Marathon, Terrace Bay, and Sault Ste. Marie, we are demonstrating the love of God. And don't discount all the work back here. I know sometimes it can be discouraging when you hear testimonies from an earlier time, you know, oh, we just went out and did some street ministry and we brought 20 people to Christ or someone had this evangelistic rally and they had a thousand decisions for Jesus. It's wonderful when people make that decision and we always want people to know Jesus and spend eternity with him and see their lives transformed. But even Paul in Athens and the early church, they did a lot of this early work. And you'll notice as we continue this part of the passage that Paul has more conversations before anybody comes to Jesus. So verse 19, because of how Paul has done these conversations earlier, there's an invitation. Verse 19, then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, a more public place, more formal, where he can explain himself more fully, where they said to him, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we would like to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. So Paul has opportunity number two to keep talking about this. As he's done in the marketplace, now he gets to go to the Areopagus and actually tell them about it. This is interesting. And so what began sounding like criticism or just making fun of him or them not getting it is turning to curiosity. Who is this Jesus? What did he do? What are you saying? And so Paul takes the opportunity. And I, I love this presentation of the gospel here because Paul has clearly spent his time in Athens and he's not just been like twiddling his thumbs and like eating some souvlaki and being like, well, God, you know, when you move me on to the next city, I'm gonna do something. He's been reading, he's been listening, he's been learning, he's been talking to people and he understands how to present the gospel to them. So here's what he does, verse 22. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship, and this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples made by human hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. 
From one man he made all the nations, that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. And then Paul quotes a couple of their local people. He uses words they're already familiar with. He says, for in him we live and move and have our being. That's the first quote. Then he says, as some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day where he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. So Paul lays it out for them. He gives them the whole gospel. He talks about Jesus as the man God appointed and raised from the dead. He goes back to Adam, the first man, and talks about him. And he gives them the gospel. But he does so demonstrating he's listened. He does so when he's invited. And he does so in a way that promotes further conversation. And here's the response. And again, if you get a mixed response to presenting the gospel, you're not doing anything wrong. This is how it happened for Paul. Verse 32. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered. Some of them sneered. That's expected. Our faith hinges on a supernatural event. That the life of Jesus Christ in, hi in history, his death, his burial, and resurrection, that is the center with which all of Christianity revolves around. God's salvation plan. Without the resurrection, we don't have Christianity. And Paul's not compromising on that. And it's hard for our culture to swallow too. So we shouldn't be surprised if people have a hard time with it. But we know that our faith is on a firm foundation. We know we have the eyewitness accounts of the gospels. We know we have the powerful work of the Holy Spirit and the church throughout history. And we know that Jesus is still saving people and changing lives today. And so some of them sneered, but others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. So if you're keeping count, this is invitation number three. And nobody is a Christian yet. People are open to dialogue, and then they invite them to speak at, at a more formal event, and then they want to hear them again. They want to hear more on this subject because the Holy Spirit is compelling them. The Holy Spirit is working on their hearts. God is drawing them to himself. But in a culture that starts over here, there's a framework and an understanding that has to come before they'll come to Jesus. So at that, Paul left the council and Paul gets an invitation to come back. And he does not get instant salvations. He does not get thousands of decisions for Jesus. He doesn't plug them all into a house church and say, okay, you're gonna start uh, next steps and join the church. And a lot, of, a lot of times, again, when we present the gospel to people or tell them about Jesus or demonstrate God's love, we're not gonna get that instant salvation right away. But it doesn't mean that it's ineffective. We may just get an invitation to come back to their house or tell them more of our story. Or they may ask, how did you forgive that person? Or when you ask somebody to come to church, they may say, you know what? I'd like to go to church again. I'd like to check that out. Or maybe just come back to my school and volunteer. Wherever God's put us in the platforms he's given us, there won't just be people who are frustrated and don't get it. 
God is gonna have people have a curiosity. And we'll keep taking the initiative as his witnesses, every single one of us, to go out and tell people. But we're gonna be watching and looking for those opportunities to tell people more and to come back. Because here is the outcome, guys. It's not fruitless, it's not in vain. It is a seed that is planted. And some of it falls on rocky soil, and some of it the birds eat, but some of it falls on good soil and produces what? A hundred times what was sown. So verse 34, some of the people became followers of Paul and believed. And they're brand new to this Jesus thing. Because among them was Dionysus, a member of the Areopagus, also a woman named Damaris and a number of others. God brought people to faith in Athens, ancient Athens. There is no culture in history that is too godless, too secular, or too full of idols for people to come to Jesus. There is nowhere that is so lost that the message of Jesus Christ cannot bring people to him. Second Peter three says, God does not desire anyone to perish, but all men to be saved and come to knowledge of the truth. That's why God's patient with us. That's why he hasn't come back yet. He wants people to get to know him. That's God's character. And in Athens, was it a process? Yep. Did it take a while? Yep. Did uh, Paul get an instant response? And uh, did he find it easy? Not at all. But people came to faith in Jesus. But it wasn't just that people came to faith in, in Jesus in Athens. A new way of doing church had opened up. A new way of talking about Jesus had opened up. Okay, so the marketplace works. And even in the next city, you know, they do the synagogue thing again, and then there's a house they speak in, another one of those large houses. But when Paul ends up in Ephesus not long after this, he goes through this pattern that we're, we're kind of familiar with if we read through the book of Acts, that he goes to the synagogue, and eventually people, you know, they don't like him preaching what he's preaching, and so he's, you know, kicked out of the synagogue. And so where Paul goes at Ephesus is the lecture hall of Tyrannus, and which they use it in the morning to talk to their students. And then when it wasn't used off peak hours, as we have an electricity here at our, our off peak hours, when not a lot of people are in the lecture hall, the church gets to meet there. And Paul gets to teach people out of the lecture hall in Ephesus. And it turns out that for two years, if you go to Acts um, 19, for two years, Paul taught out of the lecture hall of Tyrannus. And what's amazing (laughs) is that it says 1910. This went on for two years so that all the Jews and the Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. God used this new space, a, a lecture hall of all things, which was usually used to promote other kinds of ideas. And he turns it into the greatest center for missions for the entire province of Asia for all the people, not just Jewish, not just Greek, for everyone in the entire province to hear the word of the Lord, because he gives them a shared space. And so I love it when I hear of churches these days, right, that are able to do a shared space or that are able to use spaces that are not church spaces, right? And for the churches that are watching today, for us in Sault Ste. Marie and for us in um, Terrace Bay and Marathon, we have church buildings, right? And a lot of times for us, it goes the other way. It's how do we invite the community to use our space? But sometimes it's how do we use a community park or how do we go somewhere? And whenever we can do that, we're excited to say, you know, this isn't just a new idea, but hey, the early church, 
They used homes, they used lecture halls, they used all sorts of spaces. And God used them to multiply the church. He used it so we could all be witnesses and all talk about Jesus. Um, a couple of our churches support Julius Kenya Manyara in Tanzania. And um, if you support them or you know about their ministry at Villages of Hope, at Village of Hope, um, his wife, Jade, passed away last year. And uh, she was just a couple a couple years off my age. She passed away from a stroke and it was, it was just awful. And they had just planted a church. They had just planted it in shared space in Mwanza, Tanzania called Petra City Church. And it has been an, an incredible testimony the past year to see how Julius and his three sons and their church leadership and Julius's father-in-law and mother-in-law have all banded together along with many other people. And they've continued to minister. They've continued to work with that church and with Village of Hope. They've continued to use even their distress, their inconvenience, their waiting, their uncertainty about why what's going on is going on. And they've still said that it's an opportunity for God to spread the gospel. And God has given them the strength to go through it, but also to look to the needs of others, even as they're processing grief themselves. Second Corinthians chapter one, Paul says, if we are distressed, it is for your comfort and salvation. And Paul is a guy who could say that, right? That when he was in Athens, he was distressed because the city was full of idols. And his distress wasn't just for his own stuff, but he saw the needs around them. People need Jesus. People need to be saved. People need comfort that doesn't come from self-help or idols or other stuff that's out there. And it's been an amazing testimony to see Julius and his family say that even in their distress, they're still concerned for the needs of others. They're still on a mission for what God has for them to do in the world. There's still Acts 1 verse 8 people, right? They've received power when the Holy Spirit came on them and they're witnesses and we are witnesses. So today as we close, I wanna ask us a few things. One, I want you to remember the culture we live in. And that's not an excuse to say, oh, Canada is just too hard ground or I just can't talk to my neighbor about Jesus. Nope, it's a lot like the ancient world. It's a lot like Athens, it's a lot like Ephesus. And you have examples, read the book of Acts, read how the church has spread, read how God has empowered us, you, me, every person in our church to be witnesses where we are. Read about the people used, read about the places God sent them, read about the conversations that he supernaturally made happen. And then have the boldness to talk about Jesus, to demonstrate his love, to ask God to give us conversations. And let's be willing to use new platforms. Let's be willing to use Zoom to spread the gospel. Let's be willing to use right now a recorded video and a multi-church series to spread the gospel. Let's be willing to say, God, I'm distressed about what's happening in my life now. And legitimately so, God, I know that you helped me through that. But Lord, would you help me to have the burden that you do for everyone else? Would you help me to speak to people and show them that you are real and that God, anything else just doesn't measure up? Anything else is not the same as you, God. There's lots of useful stuff out there, Lord, but you are the only one with the words of life. And the reality, the fact of your death, your resurrection, that's what we hang our hope on. We don't compromise the gospel. We do it in dialogue. We do it with gentleness and respect. So today, I want us to think about three things. 
I'm gonna close in prayer in a minute, but I'm gonna ask us to think about three things. One, is there a place where God's given you a holy distress like he gave to Paul? Is there a place where God says, I've made you uncomfortable that this is happening in our city? Or I've made you uncomfortable that this injustice is going on? Maybe the Holy Spirit's leading you to pray for someone or talk to someone or do something about what's happening. Where is the Holy Spirit leading you to be distressed because he wants you to speak to people, just like Paul was distressed because the city was full of idols. Second, let's just imitate the early church in being willing to look at any platform we can to spread the gospel. Let's not be stuck in any way we've done it before. Let's be thankful, of course, that we have our church buildings and our ways of doing things from before. But let's just be as resilient and as responsive and as willing to take risks as Paul was in this story. Because God gives new platforms and we never know what's around the corner. Paul didn't know that he would be spreading the entire gospel of the province of Asia through the lecture hall of Tyrannus after this. But whatever the next step is in front of us for platform, let's use it. And finally, this is the last week. So I'm going to make a request. If you're a follower of Jesus, would you pray for your church leadership? and the leadership of all these churches as we navigate this stuff. We're followers of Jesus too. And we may have a certain role, whether it's, you know, elder, board member, council, pastor, but at the core of it, we're just doing our everyday lives too and talking to people about Jesus because we're all witnesses in Judea and Samaria and the ends of the earth. So right now, as we pray, let's pray together God, for God to give us wisdom for our churches. Thanks again for tuning in today. Thanks for being part of this series, guys. It's just, it's been a joy to work with John and Gary and uh, we're excited to uh, serve Jesus together and be witnesses together in all of our churches and all of our cities. So let's close in prayer. God, thank you so much for your Holy Spirit. Thank you, God, that even when things are tough and the journey is longer and we're in cultures where people don't know you, God, that you bring people to you that you bring people to have curiosity and dialogue and the Holy Spirit is active, God. I pray, Lord, that you would just lay on our hearts the things you want us to be distressed about. Lay on our hearts, Lord, where you want us to go and speak to people. I pray, Lord, just for a, a willingness and a resilience to jump on new platforms, Lord, to do what we need to do to spread the gospel and never to compromise it, Lord, but always to dialogue and do it with gentleness and respect. And God, I pray for our churches. I pray, Lord, for John Eagleson and Gary Aduono and the churches, Lord, of North Shore Church and for Parkland Pentecostal. And I pray for myself, Lord, and LifeSpring Church in Sault Ste. Marie. Lord, would you give us wisdom with our leadership teams and how to navigate a changing world? Would you give us just a heart for people, Lord, in your heart of compassion? And would you give us, Lord, wisdom in how we can keep speaking clearly about the message of Jesus and the person of Jesus? We love you, Lord. We love you so much. In Jesus' name, amen.